Questions and Answers with Sheikh Ibrahim Mous. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. You are tuned to 91.3 FM. I'm your host, Yasmina Peterson, and this is your program, Questions and Answers. And answering all of your questions this evening, I'm joined in studio by none other than Sheikh Ibrahim Mous. Sheikh, assalamu alaikum to you. Alaikum salam wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh and to all our listeners of the Voice of the Cape. Of course, we're taking your questions on 47913. Alternatively, you can send through an email to jasmina at vocfm.co.za. We will be continuing with some of the questions in which we did not cover last week. And the first question reads as follows Sheikh says, Assalamu alaikum Sheikh, is it permissible to akika on Idul Adha? Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Alhamdulillah wa salatu wa salamu ala Rasulillah wa ala alihi wa ashabihi ajma'in. Uh, the issue of atika is obviously a sunnah that is done when a baby is born. Um, so the sunnah is that you do it on the seventh day after the baby is born. Right? So is it a must that it must be on the seventh? The answer is no, it is a sunnah. So if a person does it before the seventh but after the baby is born, then that is also okay. If a person does it after the seventh day, then it is also okay. There is no uh, strict measurement to say it must be done on a particular day or in a particular time frame. All right. Um, so if a person chooses not to do it at the time when the baby is born, but is going to do it rather at the time of Eid al-Adha, when the other uh, sacrifices take place, you may do that as well. That would be obviously allowed. Although what we recommend is as soon as you are able to do it, you should do it. Because obviously it's for the protection of the child, it is for the goodwill of the child and the future of the child. So if you can do it as soon as the child is born, either the seventh day or after that, then that is obviously recommended. But any time after that, so if it coincides with Eid that you want to do it, that is also permissible. And of course the Sunnah, as we all know, is that uh, you do two for a boy and you do one for a, for a girl, that is for the Akika. Now, someone may ask, is there like a cut-off time in the, person, in the baby's life like that we don't do it after that time? Or does it just go on and on till whenever we do it? Right here we find that the Shafi'i Madhab, for example, had stated that um, it is uh, recommended to be done on the 7th. If not, then after that. And the cut-off time really is when the child becomes mukallaf. Right? When the child becomes mukallaf, now it's almost like you know, the, the, after that, it, it is no longer recommended for the, the, the parent or the guardian to actually do it. Uh, but if they still wish to, to do it, they can. But it's just like the recommendation falls away from that time onwards, right? So taking that into consideration, uh, the, the question that asks if, can, if it can be done on Eid, yes, certainly it can be done on Eid al-Adha. Shukran so much for that. If you have just tuned in, then assalamu alaikum to you. We are taking your questions on 47913. Alternatively, send through an email to jasmina at vocfm.co.za. The following question reads, Sheikh says, assalamu alaikum, is the 40 nights compulsory and what is the significance? Shukran. Yeah, as we've said many, many times before, that there is no compulsion to follow 40 nights, 7 nights, 100 nights or any other specific nights after the person has passed away. Um, these are only traditional things that we do, right? Um, so it should not be believed that it is compulsory. It should not be believed that it is even a sunnah, right? It is not a sunnah. Is, there's no ahadith that shows that there's specific athkar on these nights. However, we did mention also many times before that if the object 
objective is to make dua for the deceased and um, to show moral support for the family members, etc., then obviously there's no objection as long as we don't take it as compulsory. So we shouldn't look down on people who don't do it. We should not cause friction within a family if they decide not to do it or they decide not to keep it strictly on the 7th or on the 40th. We should not uh, you know, be too harsh on that because, it's, as I said, it's a tradition. And yes, I, I, I have no problem with the tradition uh, as long as we do it within, obviously, that kind of frame of mind and in that understanding. And then the significance, uh, particularly 40, particularly 7, particularly 100, Allahu A'lam, we don't know what exactly was the reason for that. There are some that had mentioned that it's to do with some changes that the body go through mm. when it is buried. But Allah alone knows the reality of that. That is not something that we can be certain of. Only Allah knows that. Uh, so uh, we, we say to people, then, if you wanted to get together at any time, it's fine to give support to the family, to make dua for the deceased. But do not take it as something that must absolutely be done. And sometimes people put themselves in difficulty to have these events. where They can't afford it, but they want to invite people and they want to, and they put themselves into difficulty. Uh, that should not be the case. Uh, if people want to bring things by themselves and you want to have a dhikr, inshallah, there is no problem. But it is not compulsory. Shukran so much for that, Sheikh. The following question reads, it says, Assalamu alaikum, Sheikh. Is smoking haram and if yes, is it a form of suicide? Yeah, this is one of those questions that uh, scholars obviously had uh, differed over. Um, if you look at it in the past, for example, you find that many scholars had gone to the view that it is makru, it is disliked. Where you find contemporary scholars in our times, they are more inclined to the view to say that it is not only makru, but it is haram actually mm -hmm. to smoke. And the reason for that is that it is obviously something which has been proven now medically that it is something that harms your body. Okay, so if it harms your body, if it harms your lungs or it causes cancer and it causes all these issues, then obviously we should uh, um, uh, refrain from it because Allah Ta'ala says in Surah Al-A'raf verse 157، Ye Allah has made halal for you everything that is tayyib, that is wholesome, that is good, and He had made haram for you everything that is khaba'ith. Khaba'ith here means everything that is harmful, everything that is filthy, everything that is going to affect your body, that has been made haram upon us. So anything, not only smoke, anything that harms your body in that way, it would not be considered uh, permissible. And that is why we find that uh, the Al-Azhar, for example, had also given this kind of fatwa, and many other bodies over the world had given this particular fatwa, that if it is harmful, and it, it is proven medically that it is harmful, one should refrain from it. And there's a, a verse in the Quran that we can also uh, call up here, and that is a verse in Surah Al-Baqarah, where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in verse 195 of Surah Al-Baqarah, Do not make that your hands will be the cause of your own destruction. In other words, don't you cause harm for yourself in that way because that is not what Allah wants for you. And the hadith of the Prophet ﷺ is obviously very clear. La darar wa la dirar. There shall be no harm. Harm should at all times be averted. Harm should at all times be removed from one's life. And as I mentioned, this is something which is harmful. As for the second part, is it suicide? So if a person is doing that, is he committing suicide? Um, I doubt that that will fit the definition of suicide because suicide is if somebody willfully and intentionally take his life, knowing that that is taking his life. Of course, smokers, they will tell you, well, it doesn't affect me. Hmm. So they don't believe that it is harmful for them. Although, as I said, medically, it is proven that it is harmful in one way or the other. So the smoker himself or herself don't think that they are uh, you know, harming their body in any way because they don't see the effect or they don't feel the effect. So obviously, that does not fit the description of suicide. Okay, But as I mentioned, the views of 
many, many contemporary scholars in our day and age is that one should refrain from it because medically it has been proven to be quite harmful. Shukran so much. We're taking your questions on 47913. Alternatively, send through an email, jasmina at vocfm.co.za. The following question reads as follows. Sheikh says, Assalamu alaikum, Sheikh. Can Sheikh explain the idda when your husband passed away? How long should you observe this period and are you allowed to go work during this time? Shukran. Uh, the idda for a woman whose uh, husband had passed on is clearly spelled out to us in the Quran. Surah Al-Baqarah, chapter 2, verse 234. Allah says to us, Women that have lost their husbands, those of those women that have lost their husbands, uh, they should go into an idda period of four months and ten days four months and ten days so uh, um, you can take it four times 30 is 120 days so you add another 10 so it's 140 days that um, sorry 130 days because four months times 30 is 120 added to the 10 days is 130 days that a woman should go for idda when she had lost her husband and in terms of going out obviously idda means you should confine yourself to the house you are in a period of mourning you are obviously trying to uh, mend, uh, mend yourself mend your soul you are trying to heal because of the loss so you try to obviously confine yourself to the house and also the issue of pregnancy comes up you may be pregnant etc so you don't want to uh, unnecessarily mix with other people and cause suspicion and stuff like that so all of those things are taken into consideration but uh, as the sharia tells us if a person is really uh, in need of going out if that woman must go work to sustain herself or she must go to the shop to buy some things to eat because there's no one else that can do it for her or she must go to the doctor if she is quite ill then those things are allowed so working is allowed but in that case we say just do what is necessary and then come back and spend your idda in the confines of your home as far as you possibly can. Shukran so much for that, Sheikh. And on that note, we break for ads and when we come back, we'll continue with more questions on Q&A. The SMS line is 47913. Alternatively, you can send through an email through to jasmina at vocfm.co.za. we back right after this. Questions and Answers with Sheikh Ibrahim Mouas. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. This is your program, Questions and Answers, right here on 91.3 FM. I'm your host, Yasmina Peterson, and answering all of your questions this evening, we have in studio none other than Sheikh Ibrahim Moos. To note that you can still send through your questions through to 47913. Alternatively, send me through an email, jasmina at vocfm.co.za. Sheikh, the following question reads, it says, Assalamu alaikum, is it permissible to delay a janazah? Yeah, the issue of uh, delaying a janazah, generally speaking, the standard rule is that a janazah should be done as soon as one is able to. There should not be unnecessarily, unnecessarily uh, delays. And uh, the fiqh, for example, speaks about um, if the fard, for example, salah is in and the janazah is going to take place, which will take preference. And here they say if the waqt is, for example, in, but there's still a lot of time to perform 
the fard salah, then in such a case you can actually do the janazah first and do the fard second. But if the fard salah, for example, is uh, very tight, you know that the waqt is going to go out, then in such a case, then obviously you should do the fard salah first and then the janazah salah. And then one of the things that they always speak about as far as delaying is concerned is the issue of one must be careful that the body does not change, you know, that there does not uh, be processes of change because that is what happens if you delay a janazah. You know, the, there's some, some uh, odor or smells or things that will, will, will come, will, that will occur if you delay it for too long. Mm-hmm. So those things should not obviously be, uh, be uh, allowed. One should do it as soon as one is able to. And uh, one of the things that they mentioned, for example, is that uh, if the time period is a short period that you are delaying it and you are doing it because of you are waiting for more musallis to come and more family members to come, then that is allowed as long as it is not a, a long period of time. Right, um, and this is mentioned by uh, uh, Sheikh uh, Suleiman Al Jamal in his commentary on a book called Manhaj Tullab. He has mentioned this issue where he says that ما لم يكن التأخير يسيرا لمصلحة الميت ككثرة المصلين. If there is a benefit to the mayyid to wait for more musallis to come, then of course uh, it would be allowed as long as the waiting period is going to be short. But if it's a long time, we should not delay it unnecessarily, but we should rather proceed as quickly as possible because we must remember also the deceased, they want to be laid to rest. You know, they want to find their rest as well. So it is best not to delay, uh, except for reasons which are obviously uh, plausible and acceptable, as we've mentioned one example of that. Shukran so much, Sheikh. The following question reads, it says, Assalamu alaikum. What is the right way to perform your daily salahs that was missed if you leave after you have made fajr and come home before maghrib and there is no place to make salah at my workplace from a female? Shukran, Sheikh. Yeah, this is uh, something obviously that uh, happens to some people. But firstly, I want to say you should try your best to to do your salah on time. And I I do understand you saying there's no place uh, in your workplace as such. But you should just see perhaps there's a mosque nearby or there's some Hmm. other alternate arrangements that you can make in order to at least make your dhuwar in time because your asr you can perhaps still do when you come at home. But at least at one dhuwar salah that you're going to must try to do it if you are able to. If you absolutely cannot, then obviously that will now be a qada salah that you will have to perform. So you come home and so her question is she comes home and it's before maghrib mm. so she's missed the dhuhr and asr mm. what should she do in terms of the qada of that salah we say to her if your time period before maghrib is such that you are able to do both salahs before the adhan of maghrib goes off then it is best first to do dhuhr and then asr right and then obviously maghrib the adhan will go you will do then your maghrib salah but if you come home before maghrib and the time is very very tight where you know if you are going to make both qada salahs, right, or both salahs that you did not do yet, if you're going to do both of them before the adhan of Maghrib, you're not going to be able to do both of them. You have to choose one of them. So in this case, what one should you choose? You should choose the Asr salah first. The reason for that is, when you arrived at home before Maghrib, it is still Asr. The Asr time is still in. So you can still do that salah adaan in its time. So it's best to do that. And then when the Adhan for Maghrib then goes, you can now do first your Asr that you've missed. And then you can do your Maghrib Salah after that. Right? So the rule that applies is that we try to follow the sequence in which we miss the Salahs. That is Sunnah. So let's say, for example, we miss, dhuwa, let's say we make it a worse scenario. You miss Fajr, Dhuwar, Maghrib. Fajr, Dhuwar, Asr, Maghrib. You miss four Salahs. And it's now almost Isha'i time. So what are you going to do now? You have to choose how to make up those four salahs. The first one that you will do out of that four will be Maghrib Salah. 
because Maghrib Salah is current and mm-hmm. it will go out also if you don't do that immediately. So in that case, you will do Maghrib first. And when the Adhan of Isha goes, you will now then first pay in Fajr, Dhuhr, and Asr. And once you've done those three, then you will do the Isha Salah. So that is basically what happens here. Sunnah to follow the sequence, but if the waqt is going to go out of the current salah that you're in, you do that one first and then you do the others which you missed in sequence. Shukran so much, Sheikh. 47913 is the SMS line for you to send through your questions. Alternatively, you can drop me an email jasmina at vocfm.co.za The following question reads, it says, Assalamu alaikum, Sheikh Ibrahim. Can Sheikh tell us what is the reason music is not allowed in Islam as Mahir Zain and many others like as his tracks remind us of Allah? Yeah, it is not uh, entirely correct uh, to generally uh, do the statement as it is done here that music is not allowed. Uh, This is a matter of contention and a matter of disagreement amongst our scholars. That's the first point we must understand. There is no consensus or total agreement amongst our scholars as far as uh, music is concerned. Yes, we can, for example, say that all scholars would agree that if music is associated with other forms of evil, such as drinking liquor or alcohol or such as uh, dancing men and women together that are not mahram to one another and that are haram for one another and such as uh, other evil things that like satanic things that we find in certain music or sexual connotations or vulgar vulgarity like that then obviously all scholars across the board they will all agree that that type of music is not allowed in islam Mm. because it keeps you away from allah it transgresses the boundaries of allah subhanahu wa ta'ala it is uh, bad for your soul it is bad for your heart so those things must obviously be avoided. But when we speak about other forms of music where, for example, the words are okay, there's no alcohol involved, there's no dancing between women and men when, when it happens, then there's many scholars that have a viewpoint to say that if this is the case, then we can't just say that it is haram. Okay, Because to say something is haram, you must have clear, conclusive evidence from the Quran and the Sunnah. Now yes, there are evidences which can be cited that alludes to music, for example, but these evidences are not conclusive. They are not 100% uh, confirmed to be uh, conclusive by all scholars. Now, I find, for example, a fatwa that was given by the late Sheikh Jadul Haq, who is uh, obviously one of the great uh, ulama of the Al-Azhar. He had given a fatwa and he had given quite a bit of detail on this. And of the things that he mentioned was, he said that, and he quotes, in fact, Imam Al-Ghazali. Imam Ghazali is one of the great Shafi'i scholars that lived in the 6th century. And he quotes Imam Al-Ghazali on this and he says that uh, Imam Ghazali, and I'm just summarizing and uh, interpreting his words very quickly without reading it. Basically, Imam Ghazali says that if the music is, is associated with evil, like I mentioned, like drinking or dancing or uh, women that are not dressed properly, etc. like that, then there is no doubt that it is haram. But if it is not associated with that, then there are many forms of music that can then actually be acceptable. And then he quotes also uh, Ibn Hazm, also one of the scholars of Islam. Ibn Hazm was a Spanish uh, scholar, uh, and he had written a book called Al-Muhalla, and uh, he bases the whole issue on niyyah. In fact, he says in that this all goes around your niyyah. He says, فَمَنْ نَوَى إِسْتِمَاعَ الْغِنَا عَوْنًا عَلَى مَعْصِيَةِ اللَّهِ فَهُوَ فَاسِقٍ if a person is going to listen to music and songs because he wants to disobey Allah, or his niyyah is to transgress or to do something which Allah is not pleased with, then that is wrong, and such a person will be a sinner. But if it is, he says, But if a person goes and he listens to music which is not vulgar, the words are beautiful, and it is there to relax his soul, to relax himself. Or, he says, 
or he does it because it gives him more energy to do more good things right he says if that is the case muhsin, then in this case he will be considered somebody who is doing good right so this is the quotation of ibn hazm so the issue lies uh, around the firstly the meanings that are conveyed when you sing so if it is bad and vulgar and evil and satanic meanings then it is haram if it is good meanings then obviously it is not haram the second issue which is obviously the issue of contention as well is the instruments that are used are they all okay because the nabi sallam clearly allowed some of them the nabi allowed the duf for example which is the the drums to be played at weddings to be played at uh, at the time of jihad and to play when somebody has an occasion there's nothing wrong with that the nabi sallam allowed that right but there are some scholars that feel that some other instruments are haram and others feel again they are halal again as i said there is no clear-cut evidence as far as this is concerned so the best is to say is if it's music that keeps you away from allah that keeps you away from your salah that makes you do things which are haram then clearly that will be haram we have to stay away from it and if it is music that uh, for example she mentions or, or he mentions the question of Mahir Zain or yes. people like that and the meanings of their songs mostly are to do with Islam and yeah. to encourage you and so on and so forth so if listening to that music is not associated with other forms of haram as I've mentioned earlier then the listening to those types of music will be allowed according to that group of scholars which allow it the likes of Imam al-Ghazali and others as I have mentioned and Ibn Hazm as well so it is a matter it's a quite a lengthy thing we can go into more detail than that but I think one should have a moderate approach as far as this is concerned for example we have a national anthem that's a form of music and it is something which is uh, acceptable across the board all countries have them it's become part of our identity as human beings that you relate to a national anthem although it is words that are sung and it is music that is played mm-hmm. in a certain way right so that is acceptable we find for example that our phones have all these ringtones on all different music plays from there as well right it's become part of life so um what i'm trying to say is that we should obviously try to uh, be moderate as far as this issue is concerned and if you feel by yourself that it's not good for you or it disturbs you then fine that is your view you can follow that view there are some scholars that feel that you should stay completely away from all forms of music so if you feel personally that that is what uh, is best for you then so be it but at the same time we should then not uh, look down on somebody who is following a different view okay Uh, and so that is i think what i can say at this point in time as far as that issue is concerned. Shukran so much. 47913 is the SMS line for you to send through your questions. But for now, we break for us. And when we come back, we'll continue with... Questions and Answers with Sheikh Ibrahim Mouas. Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. This is your program, Questions and Answers. I'm your host, Yasmina Peterson, and in studio answering all of your questions, we have none other than Sheikh Ibrahim Moors. 47913 is the SMS line for you to send through your questions. Alternatively, you can send me an email as well. Now, Sheikh, the following question reads, it says, Assalamu alaikum, Sheikh. How was the non-believers buried in the time of the Nabi Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wasallam? Yeah, it's a very strange and uh, interesting question, uh, which obviously uh, we, we don't uh, think about or we, we don't really have uh, you know read anything about it and so on. But I found a book that is called Al-Mufassal Fi Tariq Al-Arab Qabla Al-Islam, a book that speaks about the history of the Arabs before Islam, uh, written by a scholar called Dr. Jawad Ali. And in this book, he mentions some issues relating to how the Arabs used to uh, bury their deceased, you know, and this is prior to Islam. So obviously in the time of the Prophet those Arabs would still continue with those 
those particular practices. And uh, basically what he mentions, and I'm just going to summarize very quickly, is that he says that they used to bury people um, like uh, we ordinarily do. They used to make a hole and bury people. Uh, this used to be the custom of Arabs. And very seldom would you find that they would go for cremation, for example. Right, where they burn up the body and stuff like that. That is not in the culture of the Arabs. Although you may find individual or single cases of that. Uh, but generally speaking, the Arabs would not actually follow that particular uh, pattern. And then the scholar also mentions with regards to how were they buried, in what position were they lying when they were buried and so on. Uh, and I don't know if this is what the questioner wants to know, but uh, he mentions here that some of them used to bury their deceased the same way that we bury our deceased. Right, lying down like a person who's sleeping, either on the back or like that. Uh, that would be one way. But there are actually evidences also to suggest that some of them, and this is a quite a strange uh, um, uh, opinion, uh, that says that some of them actually used to bury their deceased standing up in an upright position. Okay, it's mentioned in this book. And then he speaks about the issue of uh, embalming the, the deceased. Now we know in Egypt they used to do that with the mummy, mummies where they obviously embalm them to, for, in order to preserve the body for a longer time. Mm. Now he mentions that the Arab, Arabs never used to do that. That never used to be, uh, I'm talking about the Arabs obviously in the Arabian Peninsula, they never used to follow that particular custom. And another uh, interesting thing that he does mention here is that the issue of putting camphor or putting some strong spelling thing onto the deceased or onto the cl uh, clothing that they're going to wear when they are buried. And we know this is a custom that we follow even as Muslims, mm -hmm. that we put strong smelling camphor or, 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 or perfume or anything that gives a good smell uh, onto the cloth or onto the coffin, etc. Et uh, he says this is actually something that was quite prevalent amongst the Arabs even before Islam. They used to do it at that time already. And it seems to then be a custom that had just followed through in Islam, where uh, the Prophet ﷺ had sort of condoned and confirmed that practice. And of course, the logic of that is quite clear, why you want to put uh, camphor or some strong smelling uh, fragrance on there, because the body gets a certain odor when the body, uh, when the body decays and so on. So to prevent uh, awkwardness in terms of the odor, we put camphor in order to uh, play. So those, those are some issues that I found in this book. And I don't know if this is what the person was actually wanting to know. If there's something more specific, maybe they can ask and I can do a bit more research and see what can be found in our in our books, inshallah. Inshallah. The following question reads as follows. Sheikh says, Assalamu alaikum. Sheikh, is the sport of boxing allowed in Islam? Yeah, it depends. Uh, again, it's linked to uh, earlier on when we spoke about uh, things that harm your body and mm. things that are, um, you know, um, going to cause injury or uh, any form of harm. Obviously, generally speaking, anything that is prone to harm your body, one should stay away from it because your body is stay sacred and one should, of course, look after your body as much as possible. And uh, we know in some of these sports, it can be quite hectic, you know, where people really injure themselves. And uh, like boxing, it is said that, you know, because of the punches against a person's head all the time, it affects the person's brain after mm -hmm. a while. Yeah, right? Because it's obviously, it's, uh, it's, quite, uh, it's quite severe, those punches that they have to take and so on. So based on that, if that is the case, then obviously it would not be allowed because you must look, as I said, you must avert anything that is harmful. But if the sport is not that intense, you do it for the fun and for practice and for perhaps getting fit, and you know that the type of boxing that you are practicing is not that harmful, right? Um, it's not that intense, then perhaps in that case we can say it is allowed. So it all revolves around the issue of what we call darar. Is there harm in there or not? And if they can certainly be said that there is harm in a certain sport, then that kind of sport should be averted. If the harm is very little, 
or very minute, then of course we can say that the sport may be allowed and we will not give consideration to that at all. That is basically a, a general view as far as that is that uh, question is concerned. Shukran so much for that, Sheikh. The following question reads as follows. It says, Assalamu alaikum. Can a parent kurban on the roof of the daughter and donate to the less fortunate? Yeah, I'm so sorry that this question is coming now because Edis would be done now, of course, and the questioner would possibly wanted to have known this already on the days of Eid. But nonetheless, for future purposes, we can still answer it. At least you'll have that information and knowledge for the future. Uh, and uh, basically, there's two views, whether you can slaughter a, an animal on the roof of the deceased. Uh, majority of scholars actually says it is permissible. Okay, and this is out of the madhahib. Three out of the four madhahib actually allows it. The, Shafi, the, the Hanafis, the Malikis, and the Hanbalis, they allow it. And they cite a number of evidences. Uh, one is a hadith that is found in the book of Imam Ahmad, the Musnad of Imam Ahmad, also in the book of Imam al-Bayhaqi, as well as the compilation of Imam al-Hakim. It is mentioned, أَنَّ عَلِيًّا رَضِيَ اللَّهُ عَنْهُ كَانَ يُضَحِّي عَنِ النَّبِيِّ صَلَّى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَّمَ بِكَبْشَيْنِ That Sayyidina Ali radiallahu an used to sacrifice two sheep on behalf of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. And this obviously means after his demise. Sayyidina Ali used to do this. And he used to actually say to people that this is what the Prophet sallallahu had taught us. So based on that you can do it. And then also we find uh, another evidence that is cited, a hadith that is in Sahih Muslim on the authority of Sayyidina Aisha radiallahu anha. She says that the Prophet sallallahu on one occasion, he slaughtered two animals. And the first one that he slaughtered, he said, Oh Allah, accept this from me. This is on behalf of me and my family. So he slaughtered the first one in the name of his family. The second one says, This one is on behalf of my ummah. So what they deduce from this is, the ummah of the Prophet is, is a general word here. Whether it is the ummah of him that had passed on already, whether it's the ummah of them that is still alive, the ummah that is supposed to still come, uh, all of them are included in there. So it means that the Prophet ﷺ did slaughter an animal for those people who were not around or were not physically present with him. Uh, so that is the view of the majority. The Shafi'is, however, they feel that it is not allowed to slaughter on behalf of someone else unless, of course, that person had given you a permission or wasiyah or had instructed you to do so. And this is what Imam Nawawi clearly states, You cannot slaughter on behalf of someone else except if he permits you. And also not on behalf of a deceased unless they had given permission for you to do so. So Imam Nawawi and the Shafi'iyah, they are strict. They say you can't do it. The rest of the scholars are, of course, more lenient. And we can follow the view of the majority in this case. So if you wanted to slaughter on the roof of your daughter, inshallah, there's nothing wrong with it according to the majority. And you would give that niya. It is on her ruh and for her blessings. And you then obviously distribute the meat to the poor as you had mentioned. Shukran so much for that, Sheikh. For now, we break for Azra. When we come back, we'll continue with the program questions and answers right here on 91.3. FM, do note that you can still send through your questions through to 47913. We'll be back right after this. Questions and answers with Sheikh Ibrahim Mouas. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. The last few minutes of our program questions and answers right here on 91.3 FM. I'm your host, Yasmina Peterson, and answering all of your questions in studio this evening, we've got none other than Sheikh Ibrahim Mwas. Now you can send through your questions through to 47913. And yes, Sheikh, the following question reads, uh, questions in which has come through via our SMS, says, Assalamu alaikum, what is the significance and why should we not cut the hair and nails if you are going to Qurban? 
Yeah, as I mentioned not too long ago, uh, that it is a sunnah. It's not that you cannot. Uh, if you were to cut your nails, it's okay. You won't get punished for it. Uh, but it's a sunnah. It's a recommendation that you do not cut your hair and nails if you plan to do a qurbani on the day of Eid. And uh, the hikmah of that is basically to relate to what the hujjaj are doing. So obviously they will be going in a state of ihram, for example, for the days of hajj. So you also go into a state where, and, and you know the hujjaj, obviously they don't remove any hair, they don't remove any nails, they're not allowed when they are in a state of ihram. So you obviously, as if you also go in such a state where you are going to refrain from certain things, and you will, we will only then cut your hair when you are uh, finished or done with your with your udhiya or your qurbani. But I must reiterate, this is a sunnah. So it doesn't mean you don't, uh, absolutely, let's say your hair is really long and it's bothering you and it's causing problems for you. You can cut your hair. It's not haram. It's not haram to do it during the days of dhul uh, hijjah until you have slaughtered. Not haram. But you have just missed a sunnah practice of our Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam. Shukran so much, Sheikh. The following question reads, as Assalamu alaikum, Sheikh. How long are spouses allowed to live apart? For example, if one of you are working in another country and you only see each other once a year. Yeah, this is something that's quite common nowadays uh, where people work overseas and the family stay behind. Uh, obviously, it is not ideal for a couple to be apart for long periods of time because uh, as a couple, as a husband and wife, uh, there's obviously uh, a need to be together. There's a need to relate to one another. There's a need to, to do things together. Um, uh, and obviously that is the ideal but we know that the ideal don't always happen because due to circumstances people are forced to leave and to go look for work elsewhere so what is the cutoff period there is no cutoff period uh, but it's basically an agreement between two people. So whatever is going to be conducive for the couple, that is what they should take. Although we do find that this question actually came up already in the time of Sayyidina Umar ibn al-Khattab radiallahu an, where he uh, asked a question to his daughter. His daughter's name was Hafsa, and she was obviously the wife of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam. So after the demise of Rasulullah sallallahu uh, in the time of Sayyidina Umar, there was a lot of people that went out for jihad, and they went to other countries and so on, and other places, uh, uh, to spread Islam and so he asked Sayyidah Hafsa what is the longest period that a woman can have sabr can have patience if her husband is not around what is the longest period she, so he asked this question to his to his daughter because he knows a woman um, it's not it's possible for a man to know what a woman feels or what a woman's needs are always so that's why he asked the question to his daughter so his daughter said that uh, she thinks either four or five months should be the longest that a woman can hold out after that it becomes difficult hmm. so Sayyidina Umar anhu actually made a ruling in his time that people should not be gone for longer than six months he made it six months right so he added a month and he said a month for traveling of course sometimes they take a time to travel back and and forth so he made it six months and he said that people going on jihad they should not be away from their spouses for longer than six months this was hikmah of Sayyidina Umar because he understood the need that spouses have to be together and to spend time together so uh, although we won't take this as a ruling that is binding or that you must follow this was his viewpoint in his time and yes there is hikmah in it but I would say in our times it depends on obviously the husband and wife and the agreement that they make with one another and uh, they know the nature of one another if they are able to but it's difficult we know it's difficult so what I'll say is if a husband is working overseas he should make it the least possible period that is overseas you must make it take the least possible period and come back as soon as he can to visit his family because that is obviously something which is needed within any marriage shukran so much sheikh 47913 is the sms line for you to send through your questions now the following question reads it says assalamu alaikum all in studio can sheikh please explain if a woman is going through divorce is she allowed to chat to non-mahram men on whatsapp 
Yeah, obviously it uh, it would definitely not be something which is suitable because you are in a state where you are, uh, you know, the, the, there's issues that you need to deal with and you don't want to cause further suspicion and further issues within your marriage and within your, your situation that you find yourselves on. So if you are chatting to non-mahram men, things that are absolutely necessary, then obviously necessities would dictate that it is allowed. So let's say you're chatting to a person that uh, is working with you or you're working for that person and you have to send a very urgent message in terms of business and so on. Please, that would be allowed. That is no problem. But I get the sense here is that can you just ordinarily chat, chat with people and say hi and, what, and uh, what's going on and just relate about everyday activities. You shouldn't. You shouldn't be doing that because you are in a period of mourning. You are in a period of, if it is that you are in the idda, uh, you are in a period of reflection. And you shouldn't. Uh, and in fact, generally speaking, you know, we should not go overboard in chatting with strange people and uh, over the internet, or over the WhatsApp and so on, because it causes a lot of problems within marriages. It causes a lot of issues between husbands and wives. So we should limit ourselves only to that which is absolutely uh, necessary. Inshallah, that is the advice that I can give in this regard. Shukran so much, Sheikh. And before we end of our program, there's one question that still came through and it says, Ya Asalaamu Alaikum, Sheikh. Husband and wife separated. Wife Murtad and got married to a Christian man. They not alone lacked as yet what does the husband do now yeah actually if uh, one of the spouses had become murtad and uh, they did not really come back uh, they did not revert back to islam then actually no divorce is needed because the the the, the fact that she became murtad that is like a a, a automatic uh, annulment of the marriage okay so there's no need for a talaq or anything like that but uh, they would be as i said they, they obviously what happens in such a case is if a person becomes murtad within a marriage we'll give them some time give them time of the idda period time which is about the three months to make up their mind what they want to do if they did not revert back within that three month period then we will say automatically that that marriage is annulled and no talaq or fasakh or separation of any sort is actually needed it's a kind of automatic uh, annulment if something like that should occur. Shukran so much, Sheikh. That then now brings us to the end of our program questions and answers right here on 91.3 FM. Sheikh, shukran so much once again for coming into studio and answering all of the questions. Jazakumullah khairan to you, Sister Yasmina, and to all our dear listeners. Uh, we hope, inshallah ta'ala, that uh, you will be under the protection of Allah until we meet in one week's time. Wassalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Wa alaikum salam wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. And as for the other questions in which we did not uh, tackle, this week we'll definitely look at it next week, inshallah. So from myself, Yasmina, as well as everyone on board, we bid you assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Questions and Answers with Sheikh Ibrahim Moussa.